Welcome to the Mind Body Breakthroughs Podcast, where we bring you amazing guests on the cutting edge of science, health, and business each week to share strategies you can use to get the breakthrough that you are looking for in your life. I am your host, Chris Donahue, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Nevada Gray. We're so glad that you're joining us today, and we'd like to invite you to join our free, private Facebook community, Mind Body Breakthroughs. The views expressed on the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast are the opinions of the hosts and guests and are not to be taken as medical advice, as the hosts and guests do not provide medical care. Information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult your medical provider in relation to your personal health and prior to making any changes in your diet or fitness. Tim Angelone is a beekeeper and policeman in the city of Cleveland, Ohio. He suffered a catastrophic skydiving accident in the summer of 2016. His world as he knew it changed in just a few seconds as he raced towards the ground. He was airlifted to a level one trauma hospital where he underwent emergency surgery to repair his pelvis, sacrum, and lumbar sacral spinal cord. Many hours later, he awoke to find that he had been bolted back together. He soon discovered that he had cauda equina syndrome and was told that he would likely not walk for many months, feel much of his body from the waist down, nor have control of his bowel and bladder for the foreseeable future. Tim would go on to experience unthinkable pain and spiraled into depression and severe anxiety. Shortly after insurance cut out his physical therapy visits, Tim joined a gym and began recovery on his own. In just 90 days, he went from being in and out of a wheelchair and unable to stand for more than a couple of minutes to practicing yoga and weight training. Tim returned to work as a police officer seven months after his injury. Nearing the one-year anniversary of his accident, he chose to take a medical leave of absence and try a different form of therapy, as he felt he had hit a plateau in recovery. So he modified his backpack to fit on his metal-laden back and flew to Europe to go for a walk. He began in France and walked 650 miles across the northern coast of Spain over the course of 53 days. He was striving for a full recovery and was determined to change the things that held him back. He returned from his trip a stronger version of his former self, both physically and mentally. Tim would go on to return to work as a police officer in a full-duty capacity and to grow his beekeeping and raw honey business bigger than he could ever have hoped. Tim is living his best life. Tim, welcome to the show. How are you doing today, brother? Pretty good. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Welcome, Tim. It's so nice to finally uh, meet you over on Skype. We've known each other for some time. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, it's been uh, a few years, so it's, it's nice to meet you in some sort of form here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim, you have an amazing story, and I'm so excited for listeners to be able to hear it and uh, for us to be able to pick your brain a little bit. Uh, but for those of us who don't know your story, just tell us a little bit about, about you and about your journey. Yes. So uh, 
it's uh it's been a long one it's been about three years so far um it all started in august of 2016 when i i had a skydiving accident so um at that point i had been jumping for several years and uh i had racked up a, a few hundred skydives and um i on the scale of skill um i you know we, we have a rating it's a through d licensing and I had a C license at the time, and um, I felt pretty comfortable under a canopy. I was by no means a very skilled uh, skydiver. Uh, you know, we there's many people in the community who have fifteen thousand plus skydives, but uh, I was I was definitely enjoying it, uh, having a great time. And uh, you know, we went skydiving one sunny Saturday morning, and uh, in just a moment's notice, uh, my life changed. I simply put, I made a mistake. And um, it caused my canopy to do something that I didn't want it to do too low to the ground uh, under 300 feet. And uh, I hit the ground pretty hard and uh, thankfully lived. Didn't think I was going to make it through it, you know, as I was spiraling to the ground. And uh, but I'm here today. So um, it's been a quite a wild ride since. I suppose we can get into all that if you guys would like. Uh, Yes, absolutely. So as many of our listeners know, I had an injury to my spine called quadra equina syndrome. And Tim was diagnosed with the same injury. Uh, mine was from a herniated disc and Tim was from a traumatic skydiving accident. Uh, so I just wanted to give a little context uh, for our listeners of what quadra equina syndrome is and then have Tim uh, resume his story and his journey. Um, and then we'll evolve the conversation because this is really important conversation to have for anyone that's recovering from quadra equina syndrome or any type of injury, um, you know, just to have some applicable strategy uh, that you can put into going through something like this because it, it is a very hard uh, thing emotionally and physically for a lot of people. So what the quadra equina is, is it's the horsetail uh, bundle of nerves that hang off of the spinal cord. And it is, uh, it starts in the lumbar spine and it's just this whole horse tail of nerves that go to the legs, the feet, the bowel, and the bladder. And when that becomes damaged, um, nine times out of 10 from a disc herniation that comes out centrally or from a traumatic event, um, it impairs the motor and sensory function from the waist down. There are several red flags to this syndrome that a lot of people have. Um, number one is saddle anesthesia. You become numb in your saddle area. Uh, you start having trouble with your bowel and bladder. You start having sciatic pain, uh, which has been described as suicidal in most cases. Uh, you start having severe back pain, start having inability to move your feet up and down, numbness and tingling as if a limb is going asleep from the waist down. These are some red flags to the syndrome. Um, so this could be a sign that your normal back pain in your everyday life is becoming an emergency situation. Quadra equina syndrome is an emergency situation that requires prompt workup, usually in the form of an emergency MRI, and then prompt neurosurgery to decompress the quadra equina. So in my situation with a herniated disc, the best outcomes for patients um, 
according to the literature, occur within 24 to 48 hours of the decompression. Um, so it's very important to recognize this condition very quickly. It is extremely rare. It's one in 100,000. Um, according to some papers in some countries, it's one in 2 million. Most providers never see a case in their life. Uh, so this is an opportunity for Tim and I to provide some provider education and also patient education to be able to recognize uh, this emergency situation. So patients aren't usually followed for greater than two years, and many patients are left with deficits in motor and sensory from the waist down, um, in chronic pain, uh, trouble with bowel and bladder, and um, are unable to work, are become disabled, um, become severely depressed over this, as um, you know many people would as your life drastically changes uh, because of this situation. Um, so is our hope that this podcast will be able to help somebody that's newly diagnosed with Quetta Aquinas syndrome or going through the recovery period or for anyone that's recovering uh, from a severe back surgery or back injury. Uh, there is hope out there and there are people um, that have kind of navigated their way sometimes outside of the healthcare system um, to have that happen. Uh, so Tim, can you just continue your story? So you've, you've uh, hit the ground uh, from your skydiving accident, you survived. What happened next? Yeah, so uh, so you could definitely be a spokesperson for Cauda Clinic Syndrome. You know so much about it, of course, because you went through it. Uh, but uh, those red flag symptoms that you mentioned, they're very important. And so uh, if anybody, for any reason, um, ever experiences any of those, I highly recommend you go to an ER and um, beg for an MRI. But... Um, back to to the injuries so i hit the ground and of course i was in a lot of immediate pain i immediately went into shock from what i remember i didn't black out until after the fact um you know i, I vividly remember seeing my friends running to me who had just recently landed as well in the field and uh they all made their way to me uh at some point uh a fire department was called ems we were very rural um, kind of was worried about that, about how long it might take them to get there. They got there. They didn't have the proper equipment to get into the field. Um, and so they had to go back and get a truck and come back. Um, but thankfully I had a lot of good friends there laying on that ground with me and just kind of, you know, uh, taking care of me really. Uh, there were some EMS professionals that were skydiving there that day that, you know, that had done it in the past and they, they knew what to do and what not to do. Um, a decision was made for a life flight to come and they came, uh, thankfully they were actually, by the time they were called, they were just a few minutes away in the air doing a training run. I ended up getting to meet the people who picked me up that day, uh, later on. And, uh, and so they were just a few minutes away refueling and they just popped right over into the next field and, and there I was. So, uh, you know, the, I laid on that ground and I just have a very vivid memory of, that man coming up with that helmet on his head and he uh you know i could hear the rotor wash of the helicopter and he said you know we need to bodyboard you and i remember tom please don't do that please sedate me i begged for quite some time and uh you know they gave me the drugs the fentanyl uh, unfortunately it wasn't working quick enough they bodyboarded me and i i felt my pelvis break away from my spine uh and that's when i blacked out so uh a few moments later, I woke up in the helicopter, but I woke up feeling perfectly fine. By now, the, the medicine had kicked in, and um, 
I remember making a joke as my friends were at the back of the doors, you know, saying helicopter skydive jumps on me. Come on in, guys. And uh, and they shut the doors and off we went. Uh, I, I blacked out again at some point. And I woke up in the hospital. So uh, that was pr- a pretty terrifying experience waking up in the hospital and uh, being surrounded by all your family. You know, we were quite far away from where my family lived. So I knew I'd been out for some time. And um, I was in an immense, a lot of pain. I was in just an immense amount of pain. And, uh, and so they basically told me that surgery is going to be happening. Um, and they're waiting on the surgeon to get there. So uh, he arrived and quickly explained to me how the CAT scan and MRI looked and, uh, and that it looked pretty bad and that they were going to do what they could to save my nerves, which at the time I didn't understand how critical and what that meant. Um, cause I really couldn't feel anything from the waist down at that point in time. I just could feel a lot of pain in my lower and mid back and, uh, off we went into surgery. He was very confident. I remember feeling uh, very good with, with this guy. He was a professional. He's been doing it for, you know, a few decades at this point, I believe. And, um, off I went to sleep and then I woke up. And, uh, and I like to say that's when my recovery started, uh, was when I woke up, you know, and, and he was there and the anesthesiologist was there and everybody was there and I was in a lot of pain and, uh, and that was day one. So that was a pretty, pretty rough day, uh, nonetheless. And, you know, unfortunately it was my buddy's bachelor party. It was the first jump of the day for his bachelor party <laughs> on that skydive day. So I like to say I ruined the day, but, uh, you know, they all came up and seen me and it was, it was nice. So I have great friends. Wow. Well, that I am intrigued and enthralled by your story here, Tim. All right. So now you've woken up, you've, you've been through surgery. What, what did they tell you? What, uh, what was in your future? What were you looking at? Well, I had a, uh, I had a gentleman, you know, I don't even recall his name, but he, he was one of the doctors in the room. And I called him red shoes because he, he had a pair of red shoes and uh, he was always there. My main surgeon was not there, of course. I believe he was like an intern, uh, new doctor, but he got to take part in the surgery. And he said that uh, I probably wouldn't walk for at least six months and that um, I was going to have substantial nerve damage, which I still didn't understand what that meant. Uh, and uh, he said, you know, you're more than likely going to have some bowel and bladder issues like Nevada had mentioned. Uh, didn't quite understand the gravity of that situation. Um, I still really couldn't feel much of my waist uh, from the waist down. I'm sorry, uh, specifically on the backside of my body. Um, I just knew that I was in a lot of pain. And so it took uh, at least a couple couple days to begin to to feel specific areas that hurt. And of course I impacted the ground on my left side and on my, on my butt. And so that area was very inflamed and hurt very badly, but, uh, he would come in every couple of days and do some, do some testing that I'm sure many people who, who have developed CES have had, uh, they take a needle and they basically prick your body on the backside of your body and ask you, can you feel that? And usually the answer is no. And, um, and, and so they, they do that every every couple of days for quite some time. I lived in the hospital at that point for almost two months. Uh, I was transferred to a rehab facility, uh, a spinal cord rehabilitation center. Thankfully, I live in a city with one of the best in the country. And uh, and that is actually where I learned that I had CES. So 
uh, I just remember reading it. I was just reading through some documents and I still didn't know what it meant. I didn't know until probably two months later at that point um, what CES was. And that's when I found the group uh, that Nevada was part of and, um, and really began to understand uh, why I have the symptoms that I do and, and, you know, if they're going to persist for, for the future or if they're going to go away in the future. And so uh, that's kind of where I ended up. And I was about three months post-op when I really began to understand about this condition. Yes, because um, I don't know if you were like me when you finally Googled the condition. Um, I had a very bad day um, <laughs> because I I didn't really see a lot of hope. Um, there was uh, some negativity regarding it and uh, patients weren't recovering. And my neurosurgeon had told me he believed I could have a full recovery and it was going to be the hardest thing that I ever did. Uh, so, of course, I immediately paged him uh, because mm -hmm. I needed to know the truth of was I going to recover? What's my future? And the truth of that is you really don't know because a lot of patients like us are not followed and the long term outcomes. We really don't know past two years. So we search in, in the groups and we search in case reports and just try to connect um, with other people to try to find out what our future is. And at the end of the day, I just realized that I had to make my own protocol because there was not a protocol to recover from something like this. Um, so within my mindset, I just started going on YouTube. I found Sean Stevenson and that kind of, um, you know, catapulted my journey um, into where uh, I am today. What started your journey where once you realized what this was and the rehabilitation process, how did you begin to empower yourself um, to start the recovery process from this? Yeah. So just to touch back, you mentioned, you know, the, the, once I did the Googling and I began to try to understand uh, about CES, it really didn't look so good. And in a lot of the groups, it seemed like you said nobody was recovering. Uh, there were a few people, though, that, that seemed to be. And I noticed that those are the people that were moving and were talking about being active or trying to be active because during that time, uh, there's not much you could do. You know, I, I, at the time, I couldn't feel the backside of my body from the waist down. Um, my saddle was very numb. I was in a lot of pain. Uh, I couldn't feel most of my left foot. I was wearing a diaper. My bladder didn't work. Uh, you know, the list goes on. And so um, I just knew that I had to get active. But I, I will mention that there was a period of time that I grieved quite heavily. Uh, I think that's a very important part of the process. Uh, I know now that uh, you just can't stay in the grieving process because it is very scary, especially when people say things like you're going to be using a catheter to go to the bathroom for the rest of your life. Uh, your sexual function is not going to work. Um, you may be wearing a diaper, you know, for the rest of your life. And so these are all things that hit a 20 something year old man and woman or whatever age you are, uh, like a bag of bricks, as I'm sure you could, you could just imagine. And, um, and so I laid on that couch for a long time and really just hated my life, to be perfectly honest. Uh, there was a period of my time in my life uh, around month four that I just I did not want to live anymore. I, I was in a lot of pain. I was suffering through some of the most insane depression that I could have ever imagined. I realized that panic attacks are a very real thing. 
anxiety was crippling. Uh, but I had support and, and support in the way of a girlfriend uh, that had decided through all this to stay with me. And, uh, and then additionally, my brother lived with me. So, and he still does today, actually. And uh, sorry, my dog is licking my face. <laughs> and, uh, and so they, they played a major role in, in my recovery, just being there and, and telling me, you know, uh, you will have a full recovery and things will get better, but you need to move. And, and I knew I needed to move, but I wanted to, I wanted to wallow my sorrows, you know, for forever. But one day I, I mustered the courage to, to go to the gym and just take a tour. And so I did, and they took, took me for a tour and I walked in there with two canes, you know, barely able to, I was really worried about not even being able to stand long enough, uh, while I took the tour and I got in there and, um, it was a really happy place. Everybody was in there smiling. And I remember thinking that is where I want to be because the couch is making me want to do the opposite. And so the very next day I went to that gym and I told myself, I'm going for 30 days, no matter what, if it's a holiday, I'm going to find a gym that's open. Uh, I'm doing it. And so that's exactly what I did. And, uh, I started very small, you know, I, for the first week and a half, I just, stood up, crouched, squatted, and sat on the floor. And I did that in, in forward and reverse, teaching myself to sit and stand because my balance was, was off whack and I was very weak. And, um, and then, you know, that, of course, uh, just catapulted into all sorts of extra things. You know, I, I wasn't a gym junkie. I'd never been in a gym before that, really. And so I, I would just kind of watch people, what they were doing on machines and with free weights. And I just, I did it. I mimicked it, but with little to no weight and, uh, focused on like body weight exercises. And, um, and I just very slowly over the course of about three months, um, got so much stronger. It was just, it was, it was unbelievable. The transformation that my body took in those 90 days, really in the first 30 days, just 30 simple days or not so simple, really. Um, I, I put on a ton of weight, you know, I got strong, which meant I wasn't in as much pain, which meant I wasn't taking as much medication, which meant my mental health was improving, which meant I was around people and, and smiling and I wanted to live all of a sudden and, uh, you name it, it just, that simple act of going to the gym, uh, really, really started it for me. Uh, and you know, that could be anything. It could be going outside and going for a walk. You know, I did a lot of that too. And, um, and that's really where it began for me. Wow. Well, you know, and I think that what you shared is, is so important for, you know, our listeners who might be in a very similar situation, whether it's an injury or it's mental illness or some sort of degenerative condition, you know, you're sitting at the bottom and, and, you know, you're not moving, you're not, connected you're not around people you're not out in nature it's really easy to get very discouraged very depressed and it's just taking that first step like you said taking a tour of the gym uh, mm -hmm. you know i encourage clients just just lace up and go i don't care if you don't do anything that first day just go and uh, it, just taking those first steps can make all the difference. So, all right. So you've taken the first steps. You've gone to the gym. You've 30 days. Now it's 90 days. You're getting stronger. How did we get from there to this incredible journey and adventure that you had overseas? 
Well, uh, it's it's kind of an interesting uh, thing that that not too many people are probably even into or even know about. But I like you mentioned being outdoors. I thrived and still thrive to this day in the outdoors. That that is a huge part of my life. Um, and so I had a hobby before this uh, all happened, and that was generally during the winter months. Um, at least in Northeast Ohio, it's cold. You know, there's snow on the ground. Uh, going into spring, you know, I'm just trying to be outside instead of inside. And so that's about the time that the white-tailed deer start to lose their antlers. And so instead of hunting the deer like I did when I was a younger kid, I, I found a passion for um, just being around the deer. And so I would go outside and look for their antlers, which is, you know, not easy to find. Uh, and, and in past years, I had found, you know, one or two. Uh, this year, I wasn't working much, you know, I wasn't even working at this point. And so, uh, winter was here, late winter arrived very early spring. And I told myself, I'm just going to go, they're called sheds. I'm just going to go shed hunt for, you know, until I can't walk no more because I'm going to be walking. It'll be beneficial. I'll have to walk over trees and stumps and it'll be very unbalanced ground and will force me to have better balance. And, uh, all these things were true. It did. I can't tell you how many times I fell down out there walking through the woods. And I remember thinking each time, this is a, this is a terrible idea, but also a great idea because if I fall down out here, I'm going to have a problem. Uh, but, but I did, I would fall down I'd get up and I'd be okay. And, um, and that year I found 13 antlers in the woods and, um, I walked almost 500 miles, uh, you know, from a period of January, uh, into early April. And so, uh, and so that's really where it started. Uh, I, I just walked a lot, you know, outside with a pair of hiking boots on. And, um, and then I, I went back to work and I kind of forgot about it. You know, summer came and, and went and uh, I found myself sitting at a desk because I couldn't return to full duty at the time. I was still in pretty rough shape and, uh, and very unsure about my, you know, the condition of my fusion and my low back. And so I told my, my boss, you know, I remember voicing to her, I said, listen, I, I, I need to leave, you know, for some time. I need to focus on recovery again, sitting at a desk for eight hours a day is not doing it for me. And she, uh, you know, I was very nervous about having that talk with her. And because, um, you know, because cops, they want to be like tough. They want to, you know, tell you to pick yourself up and weather the storm and deal with it. And, and uh, she surprised me. She said, go for it, kid, go for it. And so. Um, she said, I, I support you. I'll, I'll talk to the lieutenant and the lieutenant talked to the commander and I spoke with all of them and they all three said the same thing. And uh, I had no time. I had burned all of my compensatory time and my sick time. And all three of those ladies and a few other people in my unit donated almost, you know, hundreds of hours to me uh, in time so that I could go on this trip and also be paid. And so that really just uh, that humbled me beyond belief. Uh, and so I decided, I told her, you know, they thought, okay, well, where are you going? You going to a rehab facility? And, uh, I said, oh, it's kind of like a rehab facility. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just not in the United States and, uh, it's going to be way cheaper. And, and they said, uh, they were all kind of like, oh. and I remember I told the commander first, I said, I'm going to go backpacking. And I put my hand up and I'm like, please don't just let me finish. And she said, go for it. And she said, uh, what do you plan on doing? I said, I'm, I'm going to go for a long walk and I'm going to make my legs work. And, uh, and she said, good for you. And, uh, 
And then that was that. I filed the paperwork and I was on my way. I literally bought the plane ticket before I even had the approval because I, I, I was going no matter what with or without their blessing. And thankfully they gave it to me. And, uh, literally a couple days later, uh, I, I got on, got on a plane and I flew to, flew to Europe and I arrived in, uh, I arrived in, um, the United Kingdom, made my way to France and, uh, walked across the border into Spain and started my journey. Yes. And you documented this entire journey on Facebook over 53 days. And every morning when I woke up, I would go on Facebook to your page and follow this journey. Um, it, it was one of the most touching, um, inspiring journeys I have ever witnessed. I cried, I cheered, I laughed. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what you learned about life on that walk? Oh, uh, so much. I, um, I highly recommend everybody do this at least once in your life. You know, I know circumstances out there dictate a lot of things. People have children and jobs, but if you can pull this off, I highly recommend you put a bag on your back, on your back and, uh, fill it with very minimal items. You know, I had two shirts, two shorts, two underwear, two pairs of socks and, uh, some soap and 200 catheters you know that took up my entire bag was almost all medical catheters and um and so i i just started walking and and i walked uh from the border of france and spain um and i just started making my way west and i walked very little in the beginning because i i of course you know did not have that sort of endurance yet and the strength and um and, and so, you know, I suffered for, for those first couple few weeks. It was very difficult. I tried to play it off like I wasn't suffering because I don't want people to worry. And um, I also didn't want to feed myself negativity. And so I just tried to live, live in the moment. And I met some of the most amazing people in the whole world, uh, you know, when I was on my way. And uh, there was a lot of other people out there, a lot of people backpack Europe. And a lot of people were out there. And I found myself in little groups and of people and we would see each other and then not see each other for a week or two or three or sometimes a month. And then you would bump into them on the trail and it's like, you feel like you've known them your whole life because, uh, you spend, you know, you, you fall asleep at the same place, usually a, a really junky hostel and, uh, you have dinner together and you, you go to sleep in bunk beds near each other or wherever you decide to lay your head. And you wake up and you have breakfast together and you talk and you get walking together and uh, you really have the ability to, to know somebody better than some people uh, that you've known your whole life, you know, in just a short few days of, of spending, you know, eight to 10 to 12 to 24 hours with them. And um, some, of the, some of these people, um, uh, you know, I would spend weeks with, I just really enjoyed their company and, um, we'd walk and then, you know, we decide to split up. And so, uh, I, in the past, you know, being a policeman in a very, very dangerous neighborhood, I unfortunately had learned to be very hypervigilant and I didn't realize how this was impacting my life until I got to Spain. And, um, it happened around day 40 that I realized I was shedding my worry of, of what the world was going to do to me at every single moment. 
And uh, many first responders in any sort of fashion uh, know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, I just began to live totally carefree. And when people would ask, you know, what, what I did for a living, and I would tell them, they would look at me kind of crazy, like, there's no way you're a policeman. Because, <laughs> you know, the image in the media is, you know, this big, bad, mean guy or gal. And, uh, and I just that just wasn't me. Um, it never really has been. Uh, but uh, I really learned that, uh, that I could trust people out there. You know, I, I tr- entrusted my bag, which had all of my catheters in it, several times to people that I knew for just a few moments. And so uh, and so that was big. That was a very big deal for me because I couldn't go to the bathroom otherwise. You know, so so trust was a, a huge thing that I learned out there along the way. Yes. Learning to trust yourself and to trust other people. And one of the things that I love so much about this journey is you not only empowered yourself in the gym for those 90 days, uh, you got yourself back to work, and then you realized that you needed other things to heal besides uh, just going to the gym, just you know, changing your diet up. Um, you needed human connection and being out in nature, and those things are so important uh, for healing and for just learning how to trust yourself and just gaining the confidence in moving. Um, I know after this happened to me, I was terrified to move. I walk like a robot for mm-hmm. probably six months because I was afraid if I moved the wrong way, I would have a setback or be permanently paralyzed. Um, when you lose control of aspects of your body, that's a terrifying t- um, thing to occur. And for people that have injuries, and not just a spinal cord injury, but any injury where they lose a function um, of part of their body. What advice do you have um, for how to deal with that and how to not let that define you? Mm. So for me personally, the big one was uh, losing bowel and bladder function. Uh, There was nothing more degrading and uh, humiliating than, you know, I'll put it bluntly, having your butt wiped by a family member you know, as a grown person, you know, and so I lost that. And, um, and then shortly thereafter, I was told uh, sexual function was was gonna be non existent. And so those were two massive blows. I mean, that those were what really set me in into depression. Um, and uh, thankfully, I, I had my girlfriend by my side, and she stayed and, you know, we're still together. It's been, you know, over four years. Um, but kind of piggybacks on what you said. Um, I highly recommend you, you do what you can to put your energy in, into the things that you can do. Um, and so for me, I, I had trouble walking, but I could walk. And so I told myself, this is a blessing. I'm going to do whatever it takes, even though every step I take, it feels like I'm stepping on a board of nails and being electrocuted at the same time. Uh, it was it was very, very hard, uh, but uh, I just told myself I'm going to keep walking, you know, and for those who, who suffer with nerve pain, uh, phew, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It makes you just want to lay on the couch and, and cry pretty much all day long, um, especially when it doesn't go away for months on end and you're left thinking, is this ever going to end? Um, but I got up and I told myself I'm, I'm going to I'm going to do the things that 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 hurt me or or are uncomfortable and, and try to sensitize my body, resensitize my body. And so I did things like walking around in my asphalt driveway without socks or shoes on 
which is still to this day is excruciating. I mean, excruciating, but uh, it helped me know that I could do that in the future if I had to do that. You know, it helped me know that if I was at the beach, I could stand walking across the cement if I had to cross it. So do the things that you can do um, and, and try your best to, to just live in that space because it's really easy to go down a deep, dark tunnel if you focus on all the things that you can't. Wow. Tim, I mean, I am just so inspired by your journey, by your story. And it really is just a microcosm for life. I mean, you know, even what you said about if you can put a put a pack on your back and just just go out and just live. I mean, I think that all of us can and need to do a little more of that in our own daily lives. I know Nevada and I are both minimalists and just, you know, getting rid of possessions and, and just paring down to what's really important. Uh, you know, what, what would you say to, to folks who, you know, maybe they can't get away to Europe for a couple of months, but how can they put some of these principles into action in their own life right now? Well, uh, you know, the, the one thing I would suggest, and so it doesn't have to be a trip to Europe, like you said, um, a, a lot of people, uh, like you mentioned, minimalism, uh, I'm not a minimalist, but um, I don't like junk. And so I think I feel like junk holds me back. And so um, and so I, I over the last, I don't know, decade or so, I've done my best to just rid my place of junk um, and, and so that I feel like I could leave if I wanted to. And I wouldn't have to worry about all the stuff, you know, at home and the burdens and the bills and with less junk means less bills. And so uh, so that's big for me. Um, but what I would recommend is that if if they want to do something or just start it for me, I would recommend starting with just walking. Uh, you know, the we both talked about it being in nature uh, is so, so important, especially if um, if you never have. I, I just. I really think everybody should take a walk out their door. You know, I'm blessed to have a national park in my backyard. I live in a very big city and uh, we have the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. And so that's where I started. I just, I would go down there for, you know, 10 minute walks, what I could bear and, and just do a little bit of walking each day. And then, you know, I'd start to see all these animals and stuff that made me feel, you know, uh, feel happy and I'd meet people or see old friends out there. And, um, and so I, I just really, really think we need to get out of our, out of our heads, out of our homes, where all of our stuff is, like you mentioned, and just and just try to live a little, you know, R really live, you know, go sit by the the water, go for a walk in the woods, um, or even just a walk down the street. Really, really doesn't matter. And one thing um, I love about that, Tim, is walking is so important because that's what kept me going, um, you know, during my recovery. One step at a time is what I told myself one minute at a time I would add on a minute I would keep myself active throughout the day and kind of break it up um, just to keep myself moving and I think anyone recovering from an injury no matter what it is um, you're going to be given exercises to do just break them up throughout the day so that you're you're moving throughout the day and you're not stagnant um, and you're you're keeping yourself moving in a forward direction one of the things I love about your story as well, Tim, is you became an entrepreneur. 
And yes. you have another passion that's extremely interesting, uh, which is uh, I follow your whole Instagram and I've learned a ton about bees. Um, mm -hmm. You founded a honey company. Uh, yes. could, could you tell us a little bit about your honey company? Yeah, so uh, I picked up beekeeping five years ago. I actually picked it up before my accident. Uh, I just started with one hive. You know, I, I don't even, I try to think back to what attracted me to it. And, um, you know, like the skydiving and the police work, I, I suppose I'm an adrenaline junkie, really, is what it, what it boils down to. And so the first time I ever went into a colony of bees with a fellow friend who was a beekeeper, uh, my adrenaline spiked and it was scary. And, uh, and it, it made me realize that, um, you know, I can't, I can't just panic and run. It's, uh, you know, there's no flight. You know, people say there's fight or flight. You know, you just kind of got to fight through it because if you run, they're going to, they're going to, you know, they're going to get you. But uh, really, they're very gentle insects. Um, I started with one hive over the years. It was two and then five and then 10 and 20 and 25 and the, list, the number goes on. But uh, I, after my first year, we, we had an amazing harvest of honey and we really didn't expect to get honey. And so I'll never forget what tasting that honey was like my first time. Uh, I, I was never really a big sugar person before this, uh, and honey is sugar, but, uh, it was just really rewarding to taste something that I helped, um, you know, keep these insects healthy and, uh, strong so that they could produce a crop so that they could live through the next year and that we could have a little bit. And, um, as we grew, we, we had more and more and more honey, of course. So, uh, so we had to sell it. <laughs> we had to, we had to get some of it out of the house because it, it was, you know, the whole sunroom of the house was filled with five gallon buckets and it was not really pretty to look at. And my girlfriend uh, had told me, you know, you got to got to get rid of some of this stuff. So uh, so that's kind of what we did. We started buying jars and jarring it up and selling it to friends and family and giving it away as gifts. And, uh, and yeah, so we got quite a little following here locally. Um, and uh, we just started with a little honor stand on our front porch. We still do it to our day to this day. And um, just tell people, you know, it's on the front porch. Come on up whenever you'd like and uh, take what you'd like and leave the money if you would like. So, yeah, that's kind of kind of how we got started and where we're at now. And uh, I, I love it. It keeps me uh, keeps me sane, I say, for my day job. It's it's really nice to have something that that I can go home to and want to pour my heart and soul into because I just love it, you know. Yes. And that balance is just so important. Um in, in life in general, never mind a, a recovery. Um, with the honey, um, I know a lot of people are probably going to be curious. Um, do you follow a special nutrition plan? Um, and where are you now in your recovery? Yeah, so I don't. I don't follow a, a specific nutrition plan. I um, Well, I, I suppose maybe I do. I, I eat what makes me feel good. Um, and I try my best to avoid the things that don't make me feel good. Um, and it kind of, you know, is in line with with the ketogenic diet. I'm, I, I'm by no means uh, in ketosis or uh, following the ketogenic diet, but I do eat a lot of meat. I was a hunter, and um, I I believe in you know eating the meat that that we harvest, and um, and you know same thing with the honey. We harvest it. I don't eat refined sugar anymore, and uh, it's really the only sugar that we use in our household. We use it for baking and things of that sort. So, um, so yeah, I, I just try to focus on eating what makes me feel well, and um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a combination of things. So, uh, but as far as my recovery, uh, it is definitely still ongoing. It, I feel like it will be an ongoing process for the rest of my life. I'm actually thrilled to say that though, because mm -hmm. 
it makes me not want to be stagnant. Uh, not for fear of what might happen, but um, for, for, I suppose, fear that I will lose this amazing quality of life that I have, that I've gained, because really, I'm happier, healthier mentally and physically and stronger than I ever was before my accident. So, um, I, yes, I do have CES and yes, it, it, it does suck. And, and I, I still can't feel the backside of my body and I'm very numb and I do still hurt a little bit and all these things, but, uh, I'm happier today than I was then. And, uh, I am stronger today and, um, I plan to continue to be that way. So, uh, n- you know, mind the, the, the CES, uh, if any of us lay around and be stagnant, it, it's going to be a problem at some point. So I just really want to keep focusing on what makes me feel good, eating what makes me feel good, try to try to stay healthy. I get out and go for lots of walks. You know, the winter's coming, so I'm probably going to walk another four or 500 miles looking for sheds this year. Um, maybe I'll get to sneak away and go for a trip. Um, I, I am in and out of the gym. Uh, when the weather's nice, I'm outside. We river walk. Uh, you do all sorts of stuff. It's just, it's a nice balance. And so, and so I think that's what my recovery looks like. And, um, and I'm excited to continue it because, uh, it, believe it or not, makes me feel alive. I love that, Tim. And, you know, I just commend you for, uh, turning this adversity into a blessing. And, you know, you hear that all the time. You hear people who come through the other side and they're grateful and thankful that this thing happened to them. And and for those that haven't been through it, it sounds nuts. It sounds crazy. What? You're happy that this happened. But I think that your story and the way that you so eloquently explained it, you know, this has made you more of who you are and brought out the real you and is letting you live your best life in ways that you probably would not have had if this hadn't happened to you. And, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm very inspired by, you can't wait to, uh, get your story out there. How, how can these people follow you? How can they find you and, and, uh, plug into your story here? Yeah. So, uh, I, I have a Facebook and an Instagram. Uh, we probably should have a, a big website at this point, but we don't. Um, on my Facebook, uh, I have a private one and a, a business one. I recommend you follow the business one. If you would like, it's probably a lot more exciting. Uh, it's at, uh, facebook.com forward slash C L E honey B C O. So, uh, you can follow me there and then uh, I'm sure it'll be in the show notes and Instagram is Cleveland dot honey dot B spelled B E E. Uh, I post there quite frequently. It's a good mix of the honeybee life, uh, and just everything else, you know, home life, uh, recovery, uh, spinal cord awareness, uh, you name it. I, I, I post it up there. If I live it, that's, that's what I post. It's, uh, that's what I try to do. Yeah. And it's an inspiration. Um, Tim has been an inspiration to me and I don't know how I would have gotten through my recovery, uh, without finding Tim back in 2016. Um, so I just want to drive a very important point, um, home, uh, from this podcast is Tim and I have the same diagnosis, but our recoveries have been vastly different. And we had and utilized different recovery protocols. Um, Having a rare illness, sometimes you just have to make your own way and make your own protocol. And we really hope uh, learning from our strategies 
um, especially for patients with quad equina syndrome that are listening to this, um, that you are not your diagnosis. You are not quad equina syndrome. You are not your diagnosis. Um, I want to repeat that again. You are not your diagnosis. Empower yourself. Educate yourself. Find people that have are doing what you hope to do and learn from them. Reach out to them. Connect with them. Um, people are willing to share their strategy and their story. And we hope that our strategy and our protocol and what we use may help you somehow in your journey or be a key um, in your recovery process. Um, so I hope you enjoyed our episode. I hope uh, for providers that are listening to this, you take the time to learn about Quadra Aquinas Syndrome to be able to recognize it quickly in your patients when they present with that and to be able to get them the emergency MRI and surgery that they will need for the syndrome. So thank you so much, Tim. I commend you. You're an inspiration. Guys, follow his uh, Honey account. We'll be posted in the show notes. And uh, we look forward to talking with you again, Tim, and following up and, and see how you're doing. Thank you so much. You were, uh, I, I got to say, you were a, a huge inspiration to me there in the beginning. You were one of the shining lights for me, uh, believe it or not, uh, in, when, it, when it was such a very dark place. And, uh, and, and like you mentioned, there is very few people speaking about having positive recoveries, and you were definitely one of them. So uh, I owe you a lot, and I do appreciate it. And thank you guys both for having me on the show. Awesome. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate you. See ya. We are proud to partner with Blue Blocks, bringing you the most advanced blue blocking lens technology available to combat digital eye strain, poor sleep, and mood. Use the discount link in the show notes and the code CKCOACH. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast today, Mind Body Breakthrough. Chris and I truly appreciate each and every one of you. Be sure to subscribe and tell a friend and to join us in our free Mind Body Breakthrough Facebook community where you can start peeling away the layers of everything that's not you so you can be you.